You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Living in America, it's easy to forget that much of that literature is not written in English. So many of us have to rely on translators. But you ever read a bad translation? You quickly realize how tough that job is. Rick Kleffel from member station KUSP in Santa Cruz, California, spoke with three translators about the challenge of bringing another culture alive and doing it right. Bea Basso came from Italy to the United States in 2000 to study and work in theater. Since then, she's done a lot of translating from Italian to English and has discovered that the choice of a single word can determine the arc of an entire work. There is no such thing as a literal translation. By nature of choosing one word rather than another, you in some way influence the next step. But word choice is just the beginning. Translating poetry is particularly difficult because the sound plays an integral part in transmitting the meaning. There's a phrase from one of Baudelaire's poems, ange ou sirène. Never mind what it means. None of those sounds exist in English. Burton Raffel has translated Beowulf, Don Quixote, and most recently Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. He's worked for decades in over a dozen languages. When I translate Indonesian poetry, the sentence we all learn at Cornell when we learn to speak Indonesian is the following. 
I can rip it off like crazy now, but when I first met it and when we all first meet it, it broke our teeth. Every region in Italy is so dramatically different. The dialect, the customs, the food. Which is why Bea Basso, who's from Venice, found it odd when she was asked to translate plays by Neapolitan author Eduardo Di Filippo. And that wasn't all. Eduardo de Filippo uses an old dialect. It's from the late 50s, so not even my Neapolitan friends would always know. They would have to ask their grandmothers. Sometimes translators are challenged by those who have come before. When Julie Rose took on Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, two previous English translations dominated bookstore shelves. The first was by a contemporary and friend of Hugo in 1862. More than 100 years later, the novel was translated by Norman Denny. Julie Rose consulted Denny's text only after she began work on her own translation. I was amazed when I read Norman Denny's preface at the sort of contempt that Denny felt for a man that he says couldn't always write that well, which is not actually my experience of, of reading Hugo. Rose found herself sympathetic not just to the work, but to the writer himself. She says she felt like she was channeling Hugo. I was very worried about losing my hair and becoming fat, which Hugo did, you know, uh, by the time he was writing it. Burton Raffel has a straightforward and strict policy about translating works already available in English. I will not do a translation if, in my opinion, one of the extant translations is a good one. I don't want to do the 150th recording of Beethoven's Third Piano Concerto. If there are 149, that's enough. And there are still plenty of great works in other languages that have never been translated. Bea Basso was asked to translate a comedy by the renowned 18th-century Italian playwright Carlo Goldoni into English for the first time, introducing his words and culture to an American audience. All of a sudden, I was a translator of gestures, traditions, customs, ways of behaving, even how many kisses do you give to people when you enter a room. The differences between cultures can be a challenge. When working on Gargantua and Pantagruel, Burton Raffel translated Middle French into modern English. Written in the 16th century, the novel was set in a time of filth and squalor. Raffel found he had to overcome the limits of the English language. Rabelais, the author of this very strange book, ends a chapter with a sputtering iteration. I believe it's something like 43 different words in French for You can't avoid that. You, I, my problem was finding 43 different words because English is not so plentiful in these things. A good translation needs to be true to the original and able to stand on its own for a new audience. Reconciling language and culture is both a science and an art. For NPR News, I'm Rick Kleffel. You can compare passages from three different English translations of Les Miserables on our website, npr.org.
Burton Raffel is a translator, poet, and scholar. His translations include Beowulf, Don Quixote, The Red and the Black, and Gargantua and Pantagruel. He's written The Art of Translating Prose and The Art of Translating Poetry. His newest translation is The Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer. Thank you for joining me, Burton. Thank you for having me. Burton, let's talk a little bit just about your general work as a, a translator. You translate primarily from other languages into English, and you translate both prose and poetry. How many other languages do you know, and what? how many other uh, translations do you do? Well, I, I, I have reading knowledges of, of a fair number. I've translated uh, from Old English, Middle English, Old French, Middle French, French, uh, Middle High German, um, Old Spanish, Modern Spanish, Catalan, Italian. I've done some Latin, and uh, my my favorite of all is Indonesian. I lived two years in Indonesia, and uh, I translate and edit, or I have in the past. I'm not doing much of it now. Uh, Indonesian uh, poetry, primarily. Uh, I'm I'm. I was, I'm more a poet than anything else. I think I'm a writer secondarily to being a poet, and I'm a translator uh, in a tertiary position. I, I don't think of translation, even though I, God knows I recognize its importance, I don't think of it in, from the point of view of the person doing it. Uh, I don't think of it as, as the highest art. When I am translating a piece, I am not the equal of the person I am translating, and usually that's absolutely <laughs> true. Uh, I, my job is to be the kind of shadow, the kind of secondary person who uh, manipulates his or her uh, work into, into English, and my responsibilities are to the uh, original author and to my modern audience. Those are the two responsibilities that, that I think are primary for a translator. Now, let's talk a little bit about poetry. Um, it, as a, One of the things you say in the beginning of the art of translating prose is that for poetry, you can't recreate the sounds or phonology, the, the no, syntax, you, you, vocabulary, literary history, no. forms, none of this. How can you, how can you go ahead if you can't recreate any of that? Well, you, it goes even further uh, than that. Uh, I used to say to to my students, there's a phrase from one of Baudelaire's poems, "Ange ou sirène." Never mind what it means. None of those sounds exist in English. When I translate Indonesian poetry, the sentence we all learn at Cornell when we learn to speak Indonesian is the following. Wow. Now, uh, yes, that, that is, I can rip it off like crazy now, but when I first met it and when we all first meet it, it broke our teeth as, as English uh, speakers. Um, you can't make those sounds in any other language. You can't make them, certainly, uh, in English. And yet, you can follow the flow 
and movement of the poem. And if you are a poet, and a pretty good poet, you can construct something in English which is viable in English and yet reflects that movement in the original. Example, when uh, Rendra, uh, one of the best of the modern Indonesian poets came to the United States and I knew he was coming, I did a kind of a festschrift, a kind of celebration for him, and translated a large batch of his poems. And since he knows English quite well, and he's a professional actor and director as well as a, as a poet, when he did a reading tour in the United States, he would read both his original and my translation. And he came back and he said, you know, Burton, when I read your translations, they sound like the movement of my poems in Indonesian. I think that's the nicest compliment I've ever been paid. Now, this gets straight to the heart of what you talk about in the art of translating prose, is this idea of syntactic movement. Could you explain uh, what exactly you mean by that? Well, syntax is Uh, not grammar. Syntax means how you arrange and organize uh, the elements of your language, putting it as as non-specifically as as possible. Uh, The syntax is what controls the the transmission of something intelligible uh, to the the audience, whatever the audience uh, may be. And syntax cannot be duplicated in another language. Syntax, the organization uh, of, uh, for example, I've just been translating Dante, and the organization of Dante's sentences uh, simply cannot be reproduced uh, in English. And if you do reproduce it in English, and you follow very, very faithfully Dante's 14th century Italian structure, you end up with garbage. It just it, it comes across as stilted, stiff, impossible, forced, and uninteresting, which has been, incidentally, uh, the judgment of most people who cannot read Dante in the original of Dante's poetry. They have enormous respect and very little enjoyment. Well, one of the things that, that um, y- you talk about I- is how culture operates on a lexicon and the shapes of word meanings and phrases. Yes, it does. Yeah, go ahead. So tell us a bit about when you translate, you're translating not just the language, but the the bigger task, the greater task is to, to translate the culture, isn't it? Yes, it, it's absolutely true. And you've got to know the culture. I was once um, asked to judge a translation of, a, of, a, of an Indonesian novel. And the man obviously knew Indonesian, and he had the the uh, the protagonist who was riding a bicycle because most Indonesians then at least could not afford any other form of transportation. Uh, the young man was on a bicycle, and the uh, the, the the translator put in a phrase which suggested that the man was traveling in the uh, early evening, and I won't go into the, 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 the particular lexicon, but the word that he used in question does not mean evening, because evening means in English 
prelude to night or beginning darkness or however you, you, you think of, of, of evening. Uh, and it sometimes means night. You can say good evening to somebody and it means good night. You can say it as a farewell, uh, usually as a farewell. And uh, the word in Indonesian refers to a time of day just after general nap time, which means about 3 to 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And it is not approaching darkness at all. And obviously the man who translated it knew the language, knew it quite well, but he did not have a sufficient grounding in the culture. And uh, this makes a very large difference in translation. This happens, by the way, uh, a very interesting example. Uh, I'm a lawyer. I'm here in New Haven to, to celebrate the 50th reunion of my class at the Yale Law School. And one of my friends, who was trilingual, German, French, and, and English, was asked to uh, review and, if necessary, correct a translation from a French, uh, Frenchman's uh, book about some aspect of law. I don't remember what it was. And my friend could not read the translation at all, and he looked at the original and was horrified to see that what he was reading was, was, was a mishmash. And what, it, what had happened was that the person wanting the translation had hired someone who was absolutely bilingual, someone who could speak, uh, read, write, live in the cultures of both England and, or, and the United States or France, but was not a lawyer and therefore could not conceptualize like a lawyer and produced English, which simply had to be thrown into the garbage can and the whole thing had to be done again by someone who understood, in this case, the narrower culture, that is the legal culture, uh, that was being represented. One of the things that, that, that I thought was the most fascinating 
part of your uh, translating book on translating prose was the way that you would analyze uh, almost mathematically a paragraph yes. of prose and look at the number of, of the, the placement of the punctuation and mm-hmm. use that as a measure of how mm-hmm. well translated something is. Could you talk about why that, and that gets to this movement, syntactic movement idea, how absolutely without even knowing the words, what the words mean, that's secondary to you in a sense, isn't it? No, not quite. No, I, I keep the, the words. The words are the element of transition, and I, I don't think of transmission, and I don't think them that they are secondary, not at all. They give us the initial clue, but they don't give us all the information. There, there are other aspects, uh, like syntax, and syntax is expressed in many different ways. It can be, ex- it can, it can be expressed between man, bites, dog. Take the same words, dog bites man, and it's, it's completely a different expression. We, we use punctuation in substitution for many of the things that we use in spoken English. We use intonation, and see, when my, when my voice goes up like that, you know I'm going to say more. But if I said, we use intonation, that's it. I've said it. I've finished. I've reached what we would say in written English was a period. And uh, if I say, I have three oranges, in prose, we would probably use a colon there. But in spoken English, we say, I have three oranges. And you level out your voice, and then you say, uh, this one, uh, that one, and the other one. Uh, this one, comma, except there is no comma. When you say, uh, this one, you have a slightly longer pause than you would have uh, when you, you say, uh, uh, he's a very happy man. You've got all of the words separated, but you don't say, he's a uh, very, I mean, people will think you have a, a very sa- a sad disease. Um, all of these are elements of, of syntax. And if I think to some extent mathematically, it is not that I am a mathematician, uh, but rather that I entered college as a physics major. And I have a, a great respect for the physics approach to the world. Not that I'm a, a physicist or can speak uh, in any way uh, for that branch of science or or any other branch of science. I am not trained in those things. But I borrow uh, where I can find intelligent um, parallels and reinforcements uh, for for what I'm doing. I do that all the time. One of the things that that, um, some of the other translators that I've talked to have talked about is how when you're doing a translation, even a, a single word can, can change the entire arc uh, yes. uh, of a translation. Could you, ha, has that ever happened to you, or do you? Oh yes, ha, have, you have examples of where, when it's happened to other translators. Well, I I, I have a, a one example of my own is is, is perhaps almost sufficient. Uh, I remember struggling enormously with with uh, in Don Quixote, and, and again I can't think of the exact word, but I can tell you the meaning. The word means uh, in 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 spanish something that is higher than the attic and less used even than an attic 
and uh, a reference is made to that uh, in in a, in a passage of, of, of speech. And how do you translate something that does not exist in English into a word which will not betray what the meaning is in the original uh, language? And what I found, what I had to do, and again, I don't have any texts with me to, 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 to quote. I'm not good at quoting even myself. Um, what I decided had to be done was the verb had to carry that rather than the noun because the noun couldn't carry it. There was no English noun that would convey exactly the sense of that particular Spanish word. But we have verbs that can do this. And then even if you call it a, uh, an, an attic, before you get to attic, you have the uh, verb because English works subject, verb, uh, object, noun, whatever. Um, you, you can color the situation with the verb and therefore make the noun mean something slightly different. You have to be extremely analytical sometimes in doing translation. Yes, it's quite true. One of the, the perils of translation that you talk about, and this is with regards to, to Chaucer's prose, is that good and bad poetry, you suggest, are still just poetry to the translator. And a lot of translators throughout history have seen fit to attempt to improve poetry that maybe wasn't they felt wasn't up to snuff, mm-hmm. and also uh, to on the fly edit out those facts and words which mm. were they deemed objectionable. Yes. Could you talk well, about uh, at y- your own experiences trying to resist the inner editor in you? Well, I don't. I really. I really don't want to do that. What I did, I had one example, for example, the word quaint, uh, Q-U-E-Y-N-T-E, quaint in, in, in Middle English, means in modern English, the vaginal opening. Uh, it, it's the direct antecedent of the English word cunt. And since the publisher wanted the book to be used in schools, I simply couldn't use that word. So it was it was a man grabbing at a woman. So I had him grab at her crotch, which conveys exactly the sense without using an offensive word. Um, this is a problem that that does uh, uh, arise. If I had <laughs> I had one uh, reviewer of uh, of my Rabelais translation. Uh, said, you know, uh, you've used the word shit so many times. Couldn't you just say something milder? Uh, the man says, oh, shit. Couldn't he say, uh, oh, muck or oh? And I said, no. I, as a matter of fact, Rabelais, the author of this very strange book, ends a chapter with 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 a sp- buttering iteration, I believe it's something like 43 different words in French for sh**. And you can't, you, you can't avoid that. You, I, my problem was finding 43 different words because English is not so plentiful in these things. 
medieval French was, was really, really rich in ordure uh, because it was all over the place. As a translator, could you talk about the problems you have when dealing with previous translations? You're, when you're translating something anew, you have these landmarks behind you. Could you talk about how that uh, impacts your ability to translate? It, it doesn't in any way. Um, uh, for example, Longfellow's translation uh, of Dante is something I, I simply I, I looked at as a child because it was illustrated uh, in, in very, very, very nice ways. Uh, and my father liked it, and uh, I looked at it, and it didn't mean very much to me anyway at that point. But no, I don't really uh, consider prior translations. I will not do, except in this one case, I will not do a translation if I'm offered the opportunity to do a translation, I will not do it if, in my opinion, one of the extant translations is a good one. If it's a good one, I'm, I'm not interested in, in competing with it. I have, if I translate something, I want to bring something to the readers which is not otherwise available. And if I if, if, if there is no need for me to do that, then there's no need for me to translate. I, I'm not interested in doing the, you know, I, I, I said to some, I've said to some editors, I don't want to do the 150th recording of Beethoven's Third Piano Concerto. If there are 149, that's enough. I, I, I don't need to do another one. Um, just as for many years I resisted translating Chaucer because in my generation and for many years, uh, Chaucer's Middle English was accessible with very, very little effort, comparatively speaking, to intelligent college students. I met it for the first time in college when I was 16. And it was a little bit quaint, but I had no trouble learning. And it's not because I'm a genius or anything. Everybody in my class uh, got it in the same. In fact, we had to memorize the first 18 lines in Middle English and stand up in class and recite them. That, that's a standard uh, kind of thing. You couldn't do that today. Uh, students are not oriented to the printed page as once they were, and they also have not been trained uh, sufficiently to undertake. Let's think of them as horses jumping. Uh, if a horse can jump a six-foot hedge, uh, it can jump a five-foot hedge. But if, if you present a horse that has only jumped a two-foot hedge with a four-foot hedge, he's not going to be able to jump it, usually. He's not, he's not used to doing that. And this is, this is what we have today uh, in, uh, as far as I know, American education. I can't speak for British or French or Dutch or German, although I think their educational systems are ahead of ours uh, at this point. We have a remarkably unskilled, un trained group of people coming into the university, and then we have a lot of nonsense going on in the four years they're at the university, and sometimes they get into graduate school, and they are sadly unprepared. I've been speaking with Burton Raffel. He's a translator whose latest work is his translation of The Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer. Thank you for joining me, Burton. Thank you for having me.
for the Agony Column in KUSP, this is Rick Kleffel with the Literary Events Calendar for the week of December 14th. To include your event in our listing, please email me at agony at trashotron.com. At Capitola Book Cafe on Wednesday, December 17th at 7.30 p.m., Brian Yeager will take you on the Red, White, and Brew, an American beer odyssey. In this ultimate beer run across the United States, Brian Yeager visits 14 breweries of various sizes, talking to founders, owners, brewmasters, consumers, and anyone else who enjoys the making, tasting, and appreciation of brew. It's filled with eclectic characters and shrewd business people who populate an industry as old as the new world and who produce liquid philanthropy one keg at a time. Call 462-4415 for details. For the Agony Column in KUSP, this is Rick Kleffel with Who's Reading in and around the county for the week of December 14th. Get out there and read a book. Basso is a freelance dramaturg and translator. She came to the U.S. in 2000. She translates from Italian to English and English to Italian. Thank you for joining me, Bea. My pleasure. Bea, let's talk a little bit about the basics of the translation experience. What was your first job as a translator? What were you asked to do? So my first job as a translator happened by chance. I was interviewing someone at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland for an Italian publication. And in talking to the artistic director there, Libby Apple, at the time, that was 2001, I happened to find out that they were going to produce Eduardo de Filippo's Saturday, Sunday, Monday, a play that is by one of the most important Italian playwrights. And as we were talking, they said that they were looking for to do a new translation, as some of the translations they'd read were either quite British in tone or sort of not muscular enough, not new enough, and especially just sounding quite English. And so one thing led to the other, and before I knew it, I was asked to co-translate this play, Sabato, Domenica, Lunedì, originally, a 1959 play, with Linda Alper, who is an actress and also a writer, and she's part of the company up in Ashland at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. So we started this process of translating together. Now, once you started this process of translating, tell us a little bit about 
you know, your your day-to-day work. You, they hand you a work in Italian. Now, was, was this a play you were familiar with? It was an author I was fam- very familiar with because it's quite big in Italy, but it was not a play I'd ever seen uh, or even read in school. So I was unfamiliar with it. And also, Eduardo de Filippo is from Naples, so very entrenched in the south of Italy. And I'm from near Venice, Azolo near Venice. So uh, as you might know, if you know Italy, every region in Italy is so dramatically different, the dialect, the customs, the food. And um, it was interesting to me that I was considered this Italian expert in general, to cour, you know, up in Ashland. But in fact, it's from within. It's so dramatically different. It's almost funny that a Venetian translator would be asked to do an Eduardo de Filippo play, which is so Neapolitan. But anyway, I welcomed the challenge, to be honest. And um, I, I just sort of delved into it, not feeling like an expert at all, precisely for this reason. So feeling more like I had to discover the, the world of this 1959 Italian family that fights and makes up and makes ragu sauce in this and that way. You know, the way of do, making it in the South is a little different than the North, all little things like that. So at first that was my task, a lot of research. And I felt particularly pressured to be prepared because I was considered the Italian expert who in our team, you know, with Linda and I, I would be the one to know about all things Italian, which is not true. As you know, <laughs> there are so many nuances and, and, and different traditions. And even depending on how you grew up and how your family is, let alone if you're from different regions. Um, so the research was my first daily task. And, uh, um, and then after that, I started to, well, I read some other work by De Filippo, and then I delved into the play, um, basically producing a literal translation. So daily I would wake up and just work at my computer and translate chunks of the text and often, very often, stopping, not just because I couldn't find the right English-American correspondent, but because I sometimes didn't know what a word was because Eduardo de Filippo uses so much Neapolitan dialect. And it's an old dialect by now. It's from the late 50s. So not even my Neapolitan friends would always know. They would have to ask their grandmothers. (laughs) And so that happened several times. And then, of course, I quickly learned in my daily um, struggles and delights as a translator that there is no such thing as a literal translation. By nature of choosing one word rather than another, you in some way influence the next step. And so it was interesting because you always associate the idea of a literal translation as an objective first step, where it's really the text just transposed literally to a new language. And quickly I found out that's simply not the case. And so in the second phase of our work, my co-translator and I, she's of course American, would often go back to the Italian together and see when something that had already been translated was potentially misleading for the whole arc of the play or whether instead it was, you know, just on the right track, but maybe we needed a different synonym and and that sort of thing. So it's also very, very detailed work. You can start with a broad vision of how you'd like the play to sound, of how you'd like it to be received or the effect you would like it to have. But then 
it's really, it becomes more of a um, detailed work that almost goes line by line. And the more you know the characters, the more you can um, go in- inside the Italian syntax and the way they express themselves and find a correspondent that's lively and agile in American English, but also faithful enough. You know, these playwrights you can trust <laughs> mostly. Um, it sounds like it, the translation, at least from the Italian, is a two, and translations in general are a two or three-step process because you're, trans, you're translating from the time when the play was written to the time you're, per, you're performing it. And also in Italian, you have this uh, regional differences. Yes. Could you talk about, do you, as a, as a translator, did you translate from the Neapolitan to the Venetian Italian uh, first and then go to English? Or was, there, was it direct from one to the other, from direct into English? Yes. Once I figured out certain special words that were completely incomprehensible to me, I would go, there is something called standard Italian, which Mm -hmm. is what we use in literature, let's say, you know, the Dante Italian. So um, I would go from the Neapolitan to mentally directly to, um, I mean, mentally through the standard Italian, but then into the English. It it was interesting because Saturday, Sunday, Monday in particular was a mixture. It wasn't all written in Italian or in Neapolitan. Some characters, usually the lower class characters, would speak in Neapolitan dialect. And then the younger generation or the more cultured people would attempt to or speak proper Italian. So it was also very interesting to try and understand how to convey those differences into American English. Well, well, there, that brings up a whole really interesting point, the idea of translating a culture, because you're not just translating yeah. the language, you're translating a culture, and as you say, family relations in Italy and in different parts of Italy may be perceived very differently than they are in America. Absolutely. I remember when I read a translation of this very play, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, that was British. And the relationship between the mistress of the house and the maid was very, was made much more polite. And the, the reality is that in Italy, you when you have a real familiarity with someone who helps you in the maintaining of the household, you can be quite direct and almost rude sounding to them without meaning disrespect. It's it's almost like it's really a cultural thing. You can also be rude to your own children or to your own parents as um, in truth demonstration of caring. (laughs) You know, um, there are many cultures where that's the case, but definitely in Italy, it's true. And I remember that one of the efforts Linda and I made was to try and retain that spark, that almost rudeness between the two (laughs) and, and make it work so that it wouldn't sound inappropriate or politically incorrect completely to an American audience of, you know, modern day Ashland, um, Oregon, but but that it would still have the spirit of that. But to answer more broadly to your question, it's really true that the, the linguistic translation, especially for theater, is only the first step of a translation process. And um, that was my big discovery when entering rehearsals. All of a sudden, I was a dramaturg and a translator of gestures, traditions, customs, ways of behaving, even how many kisses do you give 
to people when you enter a room? Do you just, you know, the greeting system and all that? And I have to say that in that first translation, um, now that I have the luxury of time to look back to it, we almost erred on the um, Italianness of it. I think we, we, we were quite concerned about showing that it was Italy and it was an Italian family and this is how we behave and so forth. So we favored in some ways the representation of the Italian world. Now, that particular play is quite light and comedic and has folkloric elements, so it, it could sustain it. But it was interesting a few years later when I was asked uh, to join the very same company um, for another translation of um, Napoli Milionaria by the same author, Eduardo de Filippo. In that case, uh, which was a different strategy or a different result simply happened by by virtue of getting more confident that these characters could be universal without necessarily having to overstress the Italianness of it. So in the first case, we had a lot of um, Italian words left in oh, Italian. Left in, left in the American... In uh, Italian. In, in the origin, in the translation. Yes. Yes, so with the greetings, the names of places, um, m- even some expressions, some adjectives that couldn't have a precise American correspondent, we left in the original Italian. It was a, a big experiment, sort of a bold an interesting experiment that ultimately I think worked for that play. But it was interesting years later with a, with a play by the same author, but with much darker tones because it was about World War, World War II and, and a more sort of a poorer and rougher situation. It simply happened that we just felt confident these characters could tell their own story. And we could be very, very specific still that in some ways makes for universality, but without necessarily having to insert or sprinkle in um, the Italian. I guess that as a translator, you feel free to cut scenes and, and change the text in ways that are pretty substantial. Uh, when you do that, don't you feel a little bit of trepidation? Don't you, you think that you know, Pirandello might show up and say, hey, hey, that, <laughs> that's supposed to be the thing. <laughs> yes. Well, I'll tell you the basic b- big difference is that when an author is either still living or the estate is still 
functioning. Like in the case of Eduardo de Filippo, you'd better be careful of that. We had to send the translation in for approval to the estate because mm -hmm. he, he only died in 84. So in that case, um, and, and actually we had a dialogue with his then widow, uh, who's now dead, about certain things that she disagreed with. Um, really? So that's one extreme, yes. And then the other extreme is, of course, in 18th century playwright where there is there are no rights issues and you can literally turn the play on its head that's just legally then on the moral or yes let's call it the moral scale of my own ethics as a translator i really really believe that in the end the playwright was most concerned with the good of their own play and nobody no Italian author would want their play translated clunkily into another language and just just so it's faithful and really specific to the line. Um, I believe that all play playwrights probably they desire for their plays to keep being alive. And, and in order to do that, because of times changing and because of a different location and type of audience, I think you're bound, you owe it to them to, to make it as alive and possible, changes included. Um, then, of course, there are differences. You know, sometimes you adapt something more dramatically and even modernize things. Um, some other times it's, you just want to keep it closer to the original and, and sort of let it, um, uh, let it be what it was meant to be. But even that is such shifty territory. I, I ultimately go back to... The ba to the fact that any translation is a balancing act and you, you can choose to have a completely source-oriented approach where you want to stick to the original as much as possible or you can choose to instead go away from it and really make it target-oriented towards so that the audience, the modern audience, can receive it. But those are somewhat arbitrary decisions if you just do them once and for all. I believe much more in the negotiation between those two extremes, and that's the balancing act. Now, you're working on something for the San Francisco Ballet. Uh, tell us about that. That's, a, that's again, uh, yet another form of translation into motion. That's such a, a good way of, of looking at it. Yes, I'm part of this project that's called the Tosca Project, and it's a collaboration between ACT the theater in San Francisco, and the San Francisco Ballet, yes. So it's a mixture of actors and these dancers. And together, we are creating a work that takes place in Tosca Cafe, that's sort of the bar, the landmark bar in North Beach from the 20s, intermingling also the opera by Puccini, from which the bar took the name. And it's definitely, we've just, we're just in the middle of workshops, and the play won't be ready until 2010, it seems. But it's it's definitely an exploration that starts, rather than starting from the text, it's an exploration that starts from the body. And it's quite amazing to see how these dancers and actors are able to intuitively go to distances and imagine situation just by the use of their body and, you know, with the help of music and some found text that actually is in the form of interviews that has been collected over the years. And the challenge in that case, I believe, is in, uh, in sort of creating structure without superimposing structure. 
so that you let the organic process of, of these movements and music and text happen without pre-structuring it, but also not letting it completely go in all sorts of direction where you don't have a heart or you don't have a central event or story. So, I have to ask, there are lots of tools online if one wants to translate, uh, to use computers to translate language. And, and I'm wondering, as a translator, do you do you avail yourself of those tools? It seems like it might be a good way to just drag and drop, you know, a, an entire first scene into one of these things and give you kind of a quick hack. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I've tried once uh, for fun. Uh, I, I don't remember, not for a, for a literal or for a literary translation at all, for something else that I couldn't understand. It was in other languages. But it's, no, it's it's very risky. <laughs> because again, it's especially in theater, it's all about context. And so to just have the words even translated accurately, but separately one from the other, is not a good idea, I don't think. <laughs> for traveling, it's useful. <laughs> <laughs> You're you're looking at translating some some of these new American plays, Itamar Moses, Noah, Noah Heidel, and Sarah Rule. Could you talk about those works? Did you choose to translate those works yourself, or were you contracted to? And no, this is just my my next idea of a project. It's not yet it's not yet fixed, and I haven't yet decided exactly how these American writers could be represented and performed in Italy, for example, or in, in Europe. And some of them have have already been. But yes, in, in being at the Long Wharf, I did discover some favorites of mine. And it's my wish, really, at this point to to talk to them. Some of them are, are now friends. And, and just, and Julia Cho is another one that comes to mind. Also, Will Eno, Glenn Berger, wonderful voices that most of all, I was just shocked that work of this kind and of this level really is not readily accessible to audiences overseas and it isn't I think because there isn't enough money set aside for translation and for cultural exchanges I don't want to be critical of America because but I think one issue America has is still its um, insularity. And whereas many efforts are now being made for external work to access America, artistically I'm talking about, there is less, there's been less of an effort for American work, I think, to reach other shores. And I'd love to be part of that process. Just to give the different face of America also to Europe, to show them that it's not all about politics or, you know, the, the news that reach that have been reaching them in the last eight years, which some of them have not <laughs> been so great. <laughs> so it's like the soul of America to me is in the artists. And why not share that? That's a fantastic idea. Now, uh, a, as a translator, do you have a mechanism for starting things happening in, for example, Venice, your, your hometown? I mean, you, you're presumably talking to these playwrights and, and making first stabs of translating the plays. As a dramaturg, I guess, are you now starting to be active in Italy? I'm, I'm, I want to. I'm starting to. This is my new... You're talking more about the future than the present. I haven't yet put everything in motion, but I do have enough contacts in Italy, also in Rome in particular, where I imagine some of this might find 
resonance. There, there is enough thirst, I think. And already some institutions, um, like one near Florence called La Limonaia, where this kind of project is welcome or has started to happen. So I'm thinking of contacting those institutions just to get the support and then enter a real dialogue with these writers I love or, you know, start with a couple probably and get into this new challenge of going back from English into my original language. Now, you, you came here in 2000. Was that right out of college or would, had you been working as a translator back then? No, not at all. I was still at the University of Padua in Italy and I was in the process of writing my thesis on an American author, Eugene O'Neill. So I came to Berkeley, UC Berkeley, to finish writing it. That was my introduction to American theater because while I was finishing up my thesis, I entered a dialogue with the ACT. I was taking acting classes there, actually, and they were going to produce a Pirandello play, already translated by Richard Nelson, a wonderful American playwright, and they needed someone like me, a sort of associate dramaturg, to help go back to the original and compare and contrast and answer questions in case they were not clear in the translation and so forth. And then I thought I would stay here for a year, and here I am 10 years later. Well, we're, we're happy to have you. I've been speaking with Bea Basso. She's a freelance translator and dramaturg. Thank you for joining me, Bea. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.